because it's when we're understood, when we're relating to one another in our weakness, that is where our love for one another deepens. That is where we're brought together. You know, how is David able to pray this way time and time again in the midst of so much fear and suffering? It's because he was so confident in God's love. He knew that God saw him in his weakness and he understood. You know, in the middle of this section, kind of the way that this poem works, where you see this climax right in the middle, he says, wondrously, show me your steadfast love, be my refuge, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wing. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. Caleb is the pastor and campus minister of Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Tulsa. And we're thankful that a handful of you graduated from TU either recently or even a while back. That's the appropriate response, thank you. He didn't ask me to do this. Caleb lives on support. So if you're a graduate of TU and you love like Trinity and the PCA, you should be sending him money, okay? So see Caleb afterwards, um, in the very least, like tip him for a good job. <laughs> so we're thankful to have Caleb. It's good to be with you. Um, I, I've, uh, I'm a graduate of University of Tulsa and I work there, it's a great place. Um, as many of you know, I had a few pictures, but as you've been noticing, the screen's not working today. Um, uh, I, I've been there now, this will be my fourth school year. We've got a great and healthy group. It's such a joy to, to minister to these kids in such a formative stage of their lives. Um, this church, both the church itself and also many individuals here uh, do support our work and it's, I'm so grateful and thankful um, for your prayer and your, your finances to, to fund and put fuel into this thing. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you. Um, RUF is a, is a great joy, is a great job, um, and there's been many students that are now have graduated and moved on and continue to remain faithful in the church and faithful witnesses to Jesus in their commonplace and their families. Um, so thank you guys. Um, I heard a story a few, a, a few days ago about a, a PCA minister. Um, he's passed now, but, but years ago he was a chaplain in the army and during the time of the Vietnam War, he uh, volunteered to go and was assigned to, to go um, with a handful of, of, of 18 to 25 year olds on this plane to go fly to Vietnam and, and get dropped in the midst of, of, of war. And he remembers sitting on the plane and he's staring at these young men whom he doesn't really know that well yet. And he's praying for them, and he's praying for them by name, and he's praying to God that, that God would open a door for him to, to talk with them and minister to him and witness to him about the, the love and the mercy and the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's praying, he falls asleep to the point, just imagine, you're on a plane, you're going to Vietnam, and he falls asleep. 
um, to the point to where the other men, the young, young men in this, this airplane have to wake him up. Hey, it's time to jump off. Get your parachute ready. Let's go. And so as the next 18 months unfold, he had an opportunity to speak with most of these men. And it's the, the thing that stuck out about this older guy, he was in his 50s at the time, this thing that stuck out, this, that opened this door to this ministry opportunity was the fact that he fell asleep on this plane. <laughs> the, the thing that every one of these guys wanted to ask him about is, how in the world did you sleep in the midst of, of such fear and unknown and chaos? And it was in this place that he was able to, to share about, you know what? Death is not the last chapter, but the first. You know what? We have a God who, who promises to be with us in the midst of this darkness and chaos. We have a peace that's given to us from our Lord Jesus Christ that surpasses all understanding. You know, the gospel message which I hope to present this morning is not that God comes into our trials and takes us out, not this side of heaven, but the gospel message is that we have a God that comes and sits with us in our trials and knows them deeply and comforts us in them and leads us in them and strengthens us in them. And so let us now read the gospel from Psalm chapter 17. We'll read the whole, whole passage and you can follow along in your bulletin. This is a prayer of, of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart, and you have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and dwell and be with us in this place. As we come to gather and to worship you, we ask that your word would speak to us. I ask for those who come into this, this room this morning, uh, living a life of absolute disruption and chaos, that you would use your word to comfort them. And I ask for those who have gone about their weeks and months far too comfortable, that you would use your word to disrupt them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to parse this out um, in three different points. I usually do seven. 
uh, preach for about an hour and a half to my students because um, their attention span is wonderful. Seven's a, the whole number in Hebrew, and so it feels like the right thing to do, but because my back and because Scott forced me, I have to do three. Fortunately, I had a whole class teaching me how to do this in seminary, and in fact, I even made it easy for you. I've named all three of these points in the same letter. The first one shouldn't be run. It really should be the enemy, but I was, again, I had to. I couldn't think of E for the next two. So we've got the run, the request, and the renewal, all right? That's where we're going. That's how we're going to split this up. And so let's jump right into the run. Um, And you'll notice if you follow along on the bulletin that I'm actually going to start with the passages towards the back, and then we'll actually then enter into the beginning. And the reason I do this is because I'm assuming there aren't any mobsters in in this building. And because of that, there's probably no one actually physically chasing you down, wanting to kill you. Yet this was the situation that, that that, that, that David found himself in. Time and time again, actually, if you go read the, the, the Psalms, he is very keenly aware of his enemy. Most people are, are in agreement that, that this is written in the time, one of the, the instances when Saul and his, his army is coming and, and, and chasing after him, wanting him dead. And so, so for us to actually connect and be able to jump into the first verse, we have to first actually understand who our enemy is, because it's not so obvious for us as it was for David. So that makes sense? That's what we're going to do. So we're going to look at the enemy, which is described in the later verses, and there's lots of context given for that. So if you jump to verses 9 through 14, you can see some things that that David points out. So the first thing that we notice is that they're wicked and deadly and surrounding him, wanting to do him violence. Their hearts are closed to pity. That's the same word for compassion. They know he's weak and vulnerable, and they don't care. They're proud and they're arrogant. Their confidence and their strength comes from themselves. It says that they set their eyes to cast us down. This, this set their eyes is another word of fantasize. They fantasize about him dead. These are wicked men. And then David compares them to a lion in their strength and in their ability to hunt. They know the job and they know how to do it well. And then if you skip ahead, so then he asks the Lord to intervene and contend from, from who? And he describes them one last way and he describes them as worldly men whose portion is in this life, who looks to life and the treasures of this world to satisfy them. And to David, that's a frightening thing. Because who was their only opposition? So Saul has the world's comforts at his hands. He has the treasures of the world. If this world is all that there was, there was one man standing in his way. There was one man who was out to, 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 to stop him from receiving the glory. There was one man who God had appointed king, and he knew it, David. And so David is, is fearful here because this one man and his army, whose whole life and portion is in this world, has one opponent, David. And so let's just make some, some immediate connections um, here in the spiritual reality of the believer. Because we have a real enemy a real enemy who's out to get us, and it's the devil. And before you, as my seminary professor used to say, before that makes your quiver, or have a quiver in your liver, um, let me explain, as C.S. Lewis does in the beginning of Screwtape Letters, that we have two wrong errors. One is to totally deny the existence of, of our true enemy, and the other is to give him way too much credit. So we're going to try to walk that, that nice middle line here and speak to, to, to the, the real presence of the devil, because the New Testament both reveals and unfolds the Savior and King 
that was un, kind of unknown and start, you know, the pieces started to get put together and then the New Testament arrives and it's like, oh. Well, at the same time, the, the New Testament also unfolds the true enemy. You know, unfolds who it is that we're actually up against. No, it's not Assyria. No, it's not Babylon. No, it's not Egypt. No, it's not Persia. No, it's not Saul. No, it's not the, the flesh and blood, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. The true enemy has been foreshadowed and represented, but he stayed behind the veil. The true enemy is the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers, and these spiritual forces of evil. And so the New Testament unfolds not just our true Savior and King, but also our true enemy, the one hunting us down with his companions. And since the very beginning, the devil has his whole entire goal is to use trials and suffering and circumstances in your life and to use fleshly desires and temptations to enlarge your doubt, to enlarge your apathy, to enlarge the futility that you go through, and to enlarge the pain in this world to the point of destroying your soul. That's what he wants. And along the way, he wants to form you and shape you just like him. He wants to pull you away from the goodness of God, and he wants you to make him, you just like himself. He wants you to be worldly. He wants you to be arrogant. He wants you to be self-sufficient. He wants you to be enraged with hearts closed off to compassion. You know, Jesus warns us of this in, in John chapter 10. He says, we have a real true enemy and his goal is to come and to destroy and to steal and to kill us. The Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter, uses the same exact language as David here in 1 Peter 5, that there is one who is roaring around like a lion looking for people to devour. The Apostle Paul says, all throughout his epistles, this is actually one of the great mysteries for me in, in our, in our uh, just kind of this 21st century Christianity. You know, in children's books, we talk a lot about the enemy, but then we kind of become too intellectual for it, and so we don't want to talk about it anymore. But Paul talks about it all the time throughout his epistles, all over. He understands. And so earlier I quoted from Ephesians 6, but also in Ephesians 2, he says that he is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now actively and presently working. And this was written after the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And Paul says he's still actively working. I think one of the clearest examples we see is in Revelation chapter 12, when the Apostle John's given this prophetic vision, and he says the devil's job is to make war against those who obey God's commandments and to those who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. We have a true enemy who is making war against us, the jealous and arrogant angel who is cast out of heaven who has forever tempted humanity with lies about the goodness of God, inciting us towards doubt, inciting and pulling our flesh towards sin, is an active present in this, presence in this world, so much so for John says in 1 John that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He uses our trials and circumstances in our life to try and pull us away from trusting in God 
to make us more like him. He creates and strengthens cultural narratives and uses social pressures to create doubts and lies about the grace and the truth of God and his gospel. Within the church, he stirs enmity and division, closing us off to compassion, enlarging our arrogance and our rage towards one another. He entices our flesh to pursue the fruit of the tree, promising every desire we have, convincing, it, convincing us that it's a good thing. He is at work seeking, hunting, stealing, and destroying, making us apathetic towards God, making us comfortable in this world, making us doubt in the goodness of our Savior. You know, I was talking with some friends about this passage. Um, I sent them this, this Psalm 17 and just invited them over the, the week to kind of parse through it and pray through it and just reflect back to me some of the things that they, uh, they take away. They've had a really rough go of it for the last few years. Um, as she, the wife, has been battling with infertility, as she watches online, her friends continue to have kids, and she's just struggling. Um, for, for over 10 years now, her and her husband have both struggled with chronic illnesses, um, the, a few years ago, um, I didn't know that the oil industry was like a game of Miss Pac-Man where they just eat each other up, but his, his company got bought by a company and they moved him down to Houston. And then once he got there, that got bought and then that got bought and that got bought. And now he's just misplaced. And he's like, he has no stability in his work. He doesn't know any of the people he works with. You know, a month after they found this church and were starting to really call it home, COVID happens and strips away any sort of community they had and forces them to live at home like, like COVID has for a lot of us. And so I sent them this passage and just asked them, you know, who is it that's surrounding you? Who is it that's attacking you? And what do they want from you? And she texted me back after a few days and she said this, and I won't read the whole thing, but I've taken bits and pieces. She says, it begins with myself you know, I believe the lies that I'm not enough. I spiral and start this cycle in my head that seems so real and loud. In addition to this, I'm constantly attacked by the world's expectations through social media, showing me that I'm not enough, that I'm all alone, that I'm not pretty enough, put together enough, I'm not a perfect housewife, blah, blah, blah. They want me to pursue this curated Hollywood ideal of the unattainable, and I can't. But she said, going deeper still, it's Satan. Satan attacks me in my contentedness, my worth, my value, and ultimately my identity. He's deceptive and certainly convincing at times. You know, behind the scenes, enticing our flesh towards doubt and sin, behind the scenes, curating this world in a way that keeps our eyes apart from God, the one who just, his whole goal is just to keep you and I busy so that we can remain apathetic to God is the evil one. He is our greatest enemy and he's hunting us down. All right, so now let's go to points two and three, both of which will be shorter. Now that we have a little bit of context for who it is. For David, it was Saul. For us, it's the true enemy, the evil one, the accuser, the devil. Okay, so David now understands his request. Um, so a few days ago, I was sent this, this uh, America's Got Talent video. I have, I don't watch that show anymore. Um, maybe you've seen this, but I was sent this in the car and like, they're like, you've got to watch this. And so I did. And I, I, I pulled it open and 
you know, five minutes later, my son Mike is like, Daddy, what's wrong with you? I'm like up there like, like ugly crying, just sobbing. I get home and my wife's like, Caleb, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, you just gotta watch this video. And so we give our kids a sandwich and we put this on in the kitchen and like within 30 seconds, my wife's just sobbing. Um, and so am I, again, uh, as I've sobbed many times since watching this. Uh, perhaps you, you, you know the video I'm talking about. It's been going viral over the past couple days. Um, a, a 30-year-old girl, and her stage name is Night Birdie, um, who sings this song and wowed the judges, the panel, and this song called It's Okay. Um, I really recommend you to go, to, to go see it and hear her story. So this woman, she, she for the past couple of years, has been battling with three different types of cancer that are just eating away at her body. And she, she shares the story of hope. And I'm, I'm certain that she talked about God on stage and that you know, NBC didn't want us to hear that. Um, but good for, the good thing for us is that not only is she a singer, she's also a writer. And so I found her blog and she wrote this article called um, God is on the bathroom floor, describing the pain that she's been enduring. And here's what she says. She says, I spent three months propped up against the wall on nights that I could not sleep. I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob, vomiting until I was hollow. I've had cancer three times now and I barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. You know, I fear sometimes that when I, then I, when I die, and I meet with God that he'll say I disappointed him or, or failed him. That I never learned his lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day. You know, I read this like 10 times to prepare myself for this moment. Um, I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with anger. I've told him I wanted to die and I meant it. And then she concludes and says, call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but count me also among the friends of God, for I've seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, I have laid in his shadow. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen and blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers secrets to. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is there even now. God is on the bathroom floor. And this is where David's getting to. He knows his enemy hunting him down, wanting him dead. And he plays the role of God's downstairs neighbor. He says, hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. You know, I love his persistence. I love his desperation in this. You know, we live in a society that shapes and forms us to be void of suffering, to be far from suffering as far as we can. We live in a society that teaches us that true strength comes from independence. 
But if you look at David in this first verse, he is pleading, hear me, attend to me, give ear to me. He's begging, he's knocking. He's repeating himself with three different Hebrew words back to back to back each time and increasing its in, in, in its intensity. You know, to use a New Testament analogy, he's like the persistent widow in Luke 18 who kept coming to God saying, give me justice against my adversary. He's begging God to deliver him. And then what's he do? Something crazy. He appeals to his rightness. He appeals to his faithfulness in the midst of the trials. He repeats the same threefold symmetry. So he said, hear me, attend to me, give ear to me. And then the next verse, he says, you have tried my heart. And that, that word really just means test. You've tested my heart. It's, a, it's the most common word of these words in the, in the Old Testament. And then he says, you visited me by night. This phrase alludes to the dark night of the soul. And it could also be translated, you have summoned me to darkness. David is pointing to the sovereign grace of God, claiming that even this, these challenges have been brought about by you. They have gone through your hand. You've brought me here. You have summoned me to this night. And then lastly, the English doesn't quite know what to do with it, so it just says you've tested me, but that Hebrew word is actually most commonly used as a noun, and it means goldsmith. And so when used as a verb, it can mean you have smelted me with fire. I'm sorry, you have refined me with, with fire. You have smelted me through the furnace. Which just rings, and this, this echoes in 1 Peter, where it just says the trials come, and they're there as a test to test the genuineness of our faith, a faith more precious than gold that perishes, even when tested by fire, that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the day and revelation of Jesus Christ. David's saying, you've, you've tested me, you've brought me to the night, you've brought me through the fire, and I've remained faithful. And here I am again, back at your feet. What a powerful testimony. What a great example. You know, I've been reading um, this book by Dr. Larry Crabb. It's called Men of Courage, and I just wanted to speak to the guys in the room. I've been reading through this book and, and uh, been leading this small group with, with a bunch of about 15 RUF guys have been showing up Wednesday nights to, to learn this, to learn about this masculinity and the way that God has uniquely created men. And one of the ways that he defines this masculinity, the unique role of men, is that when we are faced with a challenge, when we are faced with the chaos of this world, we are called to purposefully move towards God for strength, even when we cannot clearly see the path before us. And when we do that, something comes alive in us. Men are called to courageously move wisely into the darkest regions of our world, speaking powerful words into the confusion and chaos of life. But too often, we fail in our fear, or like Adam, we remain silent, or we numb. We become lustful and enraged. We raise the white flag when chaos and suffering and trial enters into our world, and we fail to act as men. You know, Crabbe speaks in this vision that he has. He says, I look ahead into the future across the Christian landscape, and I see a few groups scattered here and there where godly character and spiritual wisdom are more honored than degrees and skill and are more valued than achievement or expertise. 
where there are men of courage with the depth of connection with Christ that only comes through unexplained suffering, excruciating brokenness, and deep repentance. Dr. Crabb desires to see men like David aware of the enemy but willing to enter into this darkness, running day and day and night and night to our source of strength so that we might be able to lead others through their suffering. We might be able to lead through our own brokenness that we might be able to lead with our character and faithfulness, tasting and knowing this God who renews. This is my final point, our our renewal. Um, A few days ago, my, my, my wife and I were out counseling. You know, one of the struggles in marriage is, is just over time, um, we kind of become our own, when, when busyness and circumstances come into our worlds, um, named Micah, Braden, and Emmy Kate, um, it tends to, to kind of pull us apart. And we start to actually see each other as, as the ones who are, are causing this pain. We start to blame and attack. And so our counselor brought us together, and, and, and his, his hope for us was that we might, we looked each other in the eyes and we held hands. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to name to one another your sins and your struggles and your shame and your doubts and your fears. And after naming them, I don't want the other one to comfort them with a Bible verse and just stamp it on top and say, well, you're going to be okay. God says this. No, instead, I, I want you to relate to it. I want you to say, I understand how you can struggle and sin like that. I do too. I want you to understand how someone can walk through that, that shame and doubt and say, you know, I do too. Because it's when we're understood, when we're relating to one another in our weakness, that is where our love for one another deepens. That is where we're brought together. You know, how is David able to pray this way time and time again in the midst of so much fear and suffering is because he was so confident in God's love. He knew that God saw him in his weakness and he understood. You know, in the middle of this section, kind of the way that this poem works where you see this climax right in the middle, he says, wondrously, show me your steadfast love, be my refuge, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wing." You know, this is the reality of this, this psalm and, and, and just about just every single psalm is that it points us to God incarnate. It points us to Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus prayed this psalm. He was keenly aware of it. He knew it. He knew it to the fullest degree. He knew what it was like to attest to his perfect faithfulness in the midst of testing and trials and temptation, appealing to his faithfulness as he asked the Father to have this cup of death pass him by. Yet he had three things in that moment. One, he had humility to submit to the will of the Father, even in the midst of such suffering. Saying, you know, this isn't the path I want to be on right now. Take this cup from me, but let your will be done. I know this is the road you want me on. He had a deep love for us in mind his brothers and sisters, and it moved him towards the cross. He knew that sticking to it in the midst of this suffering and strength, or that in the midst of the suffering would strengthen us, his brothers. 
And third, he was so grounded and rooted in the love of God the Father. He was certain that even though these trials and this suffering comes, he was the apple of his Father's eye. He knew that no matter what could come, nothing would ultimately destroy him, that he was protected in the shadow of his Father's wings so he could move forward. So the psalm is pointing us to the experience and the example of Christ, but it also points us to the renewal for us found in Christ. Because Jesus is also the fulfillment of this prayer. He is the wonderful, the wondrous love of God incarnate. You know, 1 John says, this is love, not so much that we love him, but that God loves us and sent his son for us to be a propitiation for our sins. He is this wondrous love. He is the one who came to cement once and for all that by faith we are the apple of God's eye. You need proof for that in the midst of your suffering. You need proof for that. Look to the cross and you will find this love demonstrated. The cross was his final and fullest act of love. And lastly, we know that he was both hidden in the shadow of his father's wings, but that he also hides us in his wings. The Gospel of Matthew says he is the one who has come as a mother hen to collect his chicks in his wings. In in the death of our Messiah, he came and he felt the fullness of the enemy's attack. He was surrounded and tortured and mocked and killed. He embraced the shame being nailed naked to a cross. This form of death was was the, the way that they were, the Roman authority killed those who were less than human. He took on our sin and went to the cross, nailing and bearing our shame. He embraced the enemy's worst attack, death, but he overcame. John reminds us there are troubles in this world, but he, but Jesus has overcome the world. And in his resurrection, he assures us that this world is not the end, that all of our pain and suffering will be redeemed, that it was never meaningless, none of it. The enemy and the suffering and our sins will one day be gone forever, and we will be fully renewed and redeemed. This is the hope of the gospel. Let us pray. Lord God, we we give you great thanks that you are one who enters into this suffering, this futile world, so that we might look to you and you will say, I understand, I get it. I get it to a bigger degree than you do. I get the realness of the enemy. I get the fear of death. I get it. But would we also hear the, the words that death does not have the final say. That sickness does not have the final say. That suffering and loneliness does not have the final say. That we will one day see you face to face and you are in the work now and will one day renew all things. Would our eyes be on you, the author and the perfecter of our salvation, and would you give us hope for that day where salvation breaks in? Lord, we love you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. 
Amen.